you need to find your way around the city. When the enemy is at the gates of the stronghold. When you journey into unknown lands. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ostron, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ryu. And I'm Lennon. And this is the 11th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, February 10th, and released Wednesday, February 14th, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So Lennon, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? Well, we've got a packed show for you today, and talking of packs, in our adventurous pack this week, Ryu shows us how, whilst you can't build Rome in a day, you could probably generate it in about three minutes. Next, we take a look at some D&D news as we cover the latest from Cryptic Studios and Beamdog as we look at the updates for Neverwinter MMO and Neverwinter Nights Enhanced Edition, Matt Colville and Mike Shea's latest Kickstarters, and all the latest news from Wizards of the Coast and D&D Beyond on Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. After that, we take a short rest and visit the Candlekeep archives for the lowdown on Planeshift Ixalan, before finishing off the show by looking into the scrying pool to see what you have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventurer's bags. Do you always carry this much in your bag? If we're gonna get out of here, we're not gonna need a few things. Name one thing you're gonna need this stupid roll for! Friends, Romans, adventurers, lend me your ears. As many of you may remember, the group IDM4 is currently running through a published campaign that you've probably never heard of called Tyranny of Dragons. The maps used in the storyline are quite detailed, and even many of the cities and towns used are displayed in detail for the pleasure of the explorers in the group. Note, I said many of. Unfortunately, equally abundant are those settlements only described and not really fleshed out in print. As my players tend to split up in a town setting, it's helpful not only for me as the DM to keep track of which buildings they've wandered into, but also helpful for them in situations such as attempting to join in a conversation for which their character is not present, which happens a lot more often than you would think. Since many of these areas are also where important, story-centric conversations may take place should the characters find themselves in a specific pub or market stall, I often feel the need to have a map of the city drawn out in some fashion. So, if you also ever find yourself in need of a full town map in a hurry, check out Wadaboo's Medieval Fantasy City Generator. You can make small, medium, and large maps with each successive click of the mouse on any of the size options displaying a new randomized map just for you. Don't like how a certain section of the map is shaped or think that the marketplace needs to be a bit bigger? Just use the handy warp function to drag and drop certain areas until you're satisfied with the layout. There are eight different color schemes to choose from. Ancient and color are my two favorites. Color is also quite similar to the tones used in official Wizards of the Coast maps and several other view settings to play around with as well, including changing the art style to hatching lines and adding isolines to the water formations. When it's all perfect, you can use the export feature to download your new town in .png or .svg format. There are a few quirks to keep in mind though. The random setting under the layout option doesn't actually affect the randomization of the shape of the town as far as the size buttons are concerned. Rather, it randomizes the locations of and types of areas included in the map, such as temples or slums. 
Turning off the random setting does let you decide exactly which areas you would like to see in your maps, and does keep the general layout of the town roughly the same, even though the shape and orientation will still change with every generation. Also, the More Roads option seems to re-randomize your map, instead of adding more roads to the already generated map you've just made. So if you finally fleshed out exactly how you want it to look, but forgot that you wanted another entry on the south side, you are sadly out of luck. The quirks, however, hardly make the generator any less desirable to use. It can also be combined with Donjon's demographics calculator, dungeon, and end generators to really make your new town come to life without having to think it all up from scratch. And the creator is now working on a 3D version of the generator, which also looks really cool based on his Twitter feed. Even more reasons to check it out. So as anybody who knows me in real life knows, I love maps. I've got loads of them in frames on the walls around my house. I look at maps instead of traditional pornography. It's I <laughs> love maps. And when uh, I, I can't believe I have not found this generator before, because one thing that I really struggle with is drawing maps. I really appreciate them, but I suck at drawing them. And this one can just make a town, just a couple of parameters, and poof, map. This is the best thing I've ever eaten, seen, or done. Well, that was just way too poetic. I don't know how to follow from that. <laughs> but no, this is a very useful tool. Uh, drawing maps isn't something I'm great at either. I can conceive of them, uh, but I'm better at like geological scale maps of like continents and landforms. Cities is something that I'm not particularly gifted with. So this generator is something that I will definitely be making use of in the future because it does provide a very useful layout. The only thing that I wish you could do is there is the option to add labels because when the map is digital, you can hover over sections of the town and it will pop up what section of the town you're looking at like if it's a shanty town or if they're a craftsman or if it's a merchant area there's also the option to have the labels for those sections permanently embedded in the map but unless you're dealing with a small town the labels tend to run over each other they do and in particularly crowded areas of the city it makes it basically impossible to make out details because the labels are all huge and there doesn't currently seem to be a way to adjust either the zoom level of the map or the size of the labels. So that's a slight downside, but if you just provide the map of the city without the labels and you have the digital version when you're DMing, you can hover over and figure out where particular things would be. So that's not too bad. The only other thing I noticed is I don't exactly know what their definition for a gate section of the city is. I would assume it's where you're supposed to come in and out, but I just generated a map and it has the gate section in the dead center of the city, so that seems a little odd, unless it's supposed to have an alternate meaning. I actually didn't even notice that label, so I'm not really sure either. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that the uh, creator of this uh, website, they are from uh, 
Moscow, so it could just be a slight mistranslation. But it's um, yeah. Other than I, can, I can't figure out what that one is either, because it, it seems to apply to a whole district on the map, not just uh, not just the individuals. I did generate one map where it was a walled city, and it had gate sections just outside of it and just inside of it with a couple of buildings, which would sort of make sense. But once I removed the wall, it took a gate section and stuck it right in the middle of the city. So I'm not sure if, like you said, that's a translation issue or if it's just a, you know, nobody knows what's going on situation. I just generated a small map with walls and there are seven gate sections inside the wall and one merchant and one craftsman. Gate has to be (laughs) something different. Yeah. The other thing as well is that... um. This application was designed like for a, um, oh, what do they call them? Uh, not like a hackathon, but that sort of thing. Um, it's it's one of those that was thrown together pretty quickly. So, well, for throwing it together pretty quickly, it's pretty good. Yeah, right. It's and I sat here all afternoon just generating towns for my campaign that I'm running and castles, and it's brilliant. So, thanks for bringing this one to our attention. Yeah, I think it's really handy. Well, uh, is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item that you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? Let us know about it by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? Not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. First up this week in D&D news, the Neverwinter MMO from Cryptic Studios have released their latest dev blog on the upcoming Lost City of Omu expansion module. The blog gives us glimpses into the future as it discusses new boons, new repeatable tasks, and new rewards. It also saw a minor patch this week for the PC version, which should lead into Tomb of the Nine Gods having much better performance and added some new inventory sorting options. The patch has been well received in the community so far, as has the blog and details on the upcoming module. And Beamdog, creators of the ever-popular Neverwinter Nights, have recently added more to their open beta for the Infinity Engine Patch 2.5, bringing European language localizations to all other Infinity Engine games, such as Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale. Neverwinter Nights has also had a couple of updates, numbers 8157 and 8158. 8157 largely deals with regression fixes to make the game more stable, whereas patch 8158 has seen the game start preparing for integration into Steam and the Steam Workshop. Additionally, some familiar faces will be returning with a little bit of a makeover, really showing off the enhanced edition graphics. Lady Arabeth de Tilmerant, one of the first NPCs that you meet in the game, has received an updated character model thanks to updates in the engine. The latest updates also include support for specular mapping technology, bringing an updated look to existing maps without the need for extensive recreations. So looking at these screenshots that we've got from the Enhanced Edition, you can really see how much of a difference the specular lighting has made on the old map versus the new. It just looks a lot more real, a lot more uh, nicely textured and volumized. Cleaner. Yeah, much so. And speaking of cleaner, Arabeth seems to have had quite a bit of a makeover. Hair changed, armor updated. I actually think that that, that screenshot that we're looking at the updated character model is wearing her paladin armor and the 
old character model is wearing her black guard armor. That makes sense. I mean, the, uh, the original game came out in 2002. Yeah, the, the graphics are definitely from 2002 <laughs> in the old version. The newer version, the graphics are a lot more modernized. Yeah, it's a shame that they didn't modernize the armor, though. Um, they still go with the um, totally impractical for females armor. Body glue? Yeah. That's the term you're looking for. <laughs> well, she just has to avoid doing handstands or jumping. Or getting stabbed. Her chest is completely open to anything sharp, but I digress. Other than that, though, it is looking good. I do think her armor gives new meaning to the term breastplate. And if there's one thing other than streaming that has helped with the recent success in D&D, it has to be Kickstarter. No longer do budding designers need to hope their modules, monsters, or miniatures get picked up by publishers. They can now go straight to the end consumer. Indeed, the platform has been, we think it's fair to say, a bit of a game changer. No pun intended. Recently, Mike Shea, otherwise known as Sly Flourish, author of the book The Lazy Dungeon Master, has returned to Kickstarter with a book aptly titled The Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. The original was a guide for DMs on how not to get bogged down in game prep, something Lennon will be the first to attest he has a problem with, and to just focus on the game and the fun. The Return will see the book updated to take into account how the D&D landscape has changed since the first edition of the book was released, so whilst returning readers may find some parts familiar, there will still be a glut of new content for your enjoyment. As of the time of this recording, the campaign for the return of the Lazy Dungeon Master has far succeeded its target, having so far raised 16000 out of a desired 3500 US dollars. And speaking of Kickstarter, Matt Colville took to the pledging platform this week, aiming to secure $50,000, first for publication of his Stronghold rules, and second to help him rent studio space for streaming his next game at the level of quality he'd be aiming for. The Kickstarter went live at 8am. By 8.32am, it had been fully funded. As of the time of this recording, Colville's Kickstarter has just crested $800,000, making him the most successful tabletop Kickstarter project of all time. The previous record holder being the pirate-based 7th C role-playing game. $800,000, and there's still a month left to go. For those of you who don't recognize the name, Matt Colville is somewhat of an industry veteran. Not only DMing for as long as anyone can remember, his day job is that of lead writer for Turtle Rock Studios, creators of the Evolve video games, and more recently as the writer of the Critical Role comic book and producer of his Running the Game series on YouTube that aims to get people into DMing, a series that we at Heroes Rise would highly recommend. He's also the brainchild behind AdventureLookup.com, the web-based adventure search engine that we featured in Adventurous Pack in episode 4, and he was also the designer for the Dune collectible card game, he's worked on the Star Trek tabletop RPGs, the Lord of the Rings RPGs, he's also an independent fantasy author and has two books for sale on Amazon. There's currently a sample chapter of the book on the Kickstarter page, so you can get a feel for the item you're actually pledging for, the Stronghold rules, and they seem pretty solid. The book itself is also not just for DMs, it has plenty of options for players in there too, including different styles of play, new downtime activities, and new class features. For DMs, it includes different types of strongholds, such as keeps, towers, temples, and so forth, as well as rules for followers, allies, and even some adventure modules. Additionally, different pledge levels give you other rewards. T-shirts and stickers are in there, but there's also some miniatures that are sure to make Ryu one happy bunny, dragons. They are my favorite part. 
A homebrewed creation, gemstone dragons bridge the gap in alignments between metallic and chromatic dragons and come in a range of colors and ages. The rough rule of thumb is the older the dragon, the more crystalline it is, and the larger its miniature is. And they are really pretty if you guys haven't checked them out. Links to both Kickstarters can be found in our show notes, so if either of these products strike your fancy, or if you just want to help out fellow D&D creators, just head on over and drop them a few dollars. Not that Matt Colville appears to need it, mind you, right now. 800,000. Yep. Now, Ostron, you and me are from another podcast called Guard Frequency, which originally dealt with Star Citizen. So hyperinflated crowdfunding numbers isn't really new territory for either of us. No. But even still, something for Dungeons & Dragons to raise nearly a million dollars in its first day is just crazy. Yeah, but there are parallels and not negative ones. Because you're still dealing with essentially an industry legend sponsoring a project. And you've got the same type of target audience. Essentially geeks who have obsessive devotion to a particular passion and obviously a lot of loose money that they can do without and sink into this. So I don't think it's necessarily a surprise It's a surprise, perhaps, that it happened this quickly, but when you look at the situation objectively, it's not a stretch to see how it got there. Yeah. Also, one good thing is that this project seems somewhat less ambitious than Star Citizen does, (laughs) so it's probably a lot more likely they'll be solid... I'm going to get into dangerous territory here for any crossover fans, but... There's going to be a lot more solid and immediate rewards more directly matching the Kickstarter coming out on a regular basis than perhaps Star Citizen is known for. Or if I may phrase it another way, the thing that Matt Colville has said time and time again in his description is that he doesn't want to overpromise, And I think by the fact that he's really cagey about promising anything, he's more likely to hit everything that he needs to. I just think it's totally worth it to to back this project just just for the dragons. I mean, I'm I'm drooling. I'm drooling over that ruby dragon concept art. Have you actually so backed pretty. yourself yet or not? I haven't yet, but that's because it's not payday yet. Right. <laughs> yeah. Is that concept picture that's on the Kickstarter the only thing that we have so far? He has uh, released other like concepts of the concept art as weird as that may sound on twitter when he was showing like oh Oh, i've put the feelers out out. yeah he's like oh i've put the feelers out and here are five designs that could be and he's like oh i like this part from this and and, like narrowed it down but we haven't seen like the final version of all of them yet but so yeah basically the, the one that is on there is pretty much all that we've had though we've had hints at the others and in some of his videos on youtube he said that the um that this gemstone dragon is an adult and that even stands pretty tall um but the ancient dragon the one the model that they're putting on there the ancient sapphire dragon is going to be approximately like just under a foot in length judging by his hand motions so miniature for for a dragon but on a tabletop that's gonna be pretty hefty i have a really silly grin on my face right now you guys this is making me so happy. <laughs> At that skill, they're not 
usually useful on a tabletop. They more become like centerpieces for a dining table. I'll use it. There was very little <laughs> doubt of that. <laughs> yeah, um, just uh, just to take you through a couple of the dragons. So they they are starting at a, a wormling, which is. Uh, they say great for a special animal companion and then it goes young is about as big as a horse the adult is big and impressive um, and then the ancient is like bigger again one other thing that I did want to briefly mention as well and this isn't in the news but I don't know if you guys have seen um, Old Spice have released a character class for D&D strangely 3.5 have you guys seen this? I have checked it out are, are you mentioning that specifically for the picture of, of the dragon in it? Uh, no, I wasn't, actually, although okay. that's a good point. We um, were talking about dragons, so I was not terribly happy with that picture. However, the class itself is hilarious. <laughs> yeah, if you've seen the Old Spice efforts, it is the Old Spice guy as a class for D&D. And it's clearly not balanced in the slightest. It mainly revolves around making your dm hate you if you were to try and actually play one um but it's i think a really sort of funny well planned out marketing ploy for old spice when you consider that they are a big mainstream brand so to specifically go as far as creating an entire character class in dungeons and dragons to use as marketing kind of even more makes it obvious that D&D has now like pretty much fully entered the mainstream especially when you take it the reason why I was bringing that in is because when you take into account that these kickstarters like Mike Shees has exceeded its funding it hasn't done Matt Colville levels but he wanted 3,500 and has raised 16,000 at the time of recording and Matt Colville's closing in on a million you know for, for this level of support from Dungeons and Dragons fans you know, it just proves the saturation level that this hobby now has. And I am considering playing a 3-5 game just so I can make one of these characters and go, I'm on a horse. <laughs> so last week, we tackled the latest source book to be announced for D&D, Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes. We didn't have much detail. We didn't have high-res artwork. But that didn't stop us waxing lyrical over what it could be. Fortunately, this week, the details are a little more concrete than what we had previously. The various channels have been abuzz with talk on this latest product, so to save you from adventuring far and wide in search of knowledge, we've scraped together everything we can from Dragon Talk, D&D Beyond, and the official announcements. As always, links to all of this will be in the show notes. So here's what we know. Tome of Foes will be done in the style of Volo's Guide to Monsters, though slightly more upscale. This means that we can expect some in-depth lore pieces on several races and a ton of monster stat blocks. Wizards of the Coast decided to go with a Volos-esque guide, as Volos' guide was very well received, but they didn't feel that Volo had the right voice to be dealing with enemies of a much higher level. In fact, over half of the monsters in this tome will be of challenge rating 10 or higher. A lot of the monsters featured will be familiar to longtime D&D players, but there will also be some new creations that have never been seen in D&D before. Breaking it down and tackling the first half of the book, we know that we're going to be getting details on several conflicts. So in no particular order, we're going to find out about the conflict and schism between the elves and the drow, including the details on the Eladrin, which will be full fey, sea elves, elves of the sea, quite obviously, and the Shadar Kai, who are the servants of the Raven Queen. 
We'll also be hearing about dwarves versus Duragar, the latter of which are rumored to have psionic abilities. The Githzerai and the Githyanki versus the Illithids. Again, psionics there is sort of assumed. And the Blood War, a massive eternal conflict in the lower plains between demons and devils. Even the more peaceful races, such as the gnomes and the halflings, haven't managed to escape Mordenkainen's eye as we get details on their twisted inventions and mechanical life forms. Much like Volo's Guide, not only will DMs be getting a lot of new nasties with which to torment their players, but players will also get a slew of new races. Confirmed so far are the Githyanki and Githzerai, along with a load more options for Tieflings and also Cambions, both of which are no longer tied to being descendants from the infernal line of Asmodeus, but can now choose from any of the other Archdevils. We also know that the cultists that appeared alongside the Tiefling options in the Unearthed Arcana piece will be making an appearance, though no word is yet how drastically, if at all, they'll be altered from the UA outing. Tumbo Foes will also feature quite a lot of mechanics. Ostrom will no doubt have an absolute field day with the number of tables that are rumored to be included for rolling personalities and for monster encounters. Tables will be featured for both DMs and players, so if you're having trouble coming up with the ideal personality for your new Githzerai spellslinger, just grab yourself a d12 and you'll be set in no time. Finally, Wizards of the Coast and D&D Beyond also touched on what won't be included in the book. Tome of Foes, whilst it does feature some god types, doesn't really go into the divine too much, and also doesn't have playable options for abyssal-based tieflings nor illithids, and there are no plans to make a playable race for these either. Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes will release on May 29th, 2018 from all good bookstores, with the Hobby Store exclusive cover version going on sale as early as May 15th, and both are priced at $49.95 USD. You can also pre-order Tome of Foes on D&D Beyond for $29.99, so if you don't mind your content digitally, you can save yourself a few dollars. D&D Beyond will also be releasing their e-reader mobile app this quarter, making it even easier to browse your digital D&D content. And also absolutely, uh, you know, we nailed every single guess we made on that artwork last week, so I don't think we ever need to discuss it ever again. No, Every single one. I don't think we should uh, (laughs) spend any more time on it. Um... (laughs) Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> so I don't like that the Githyanki and Githzerai are now playable races. Really? Because I totally love that. I just feel like it's immersion breaking because given the history of the Githyanki and the Githzerai, to have one as part of a player party, unless everyone is playing those races, just requires ridiculously jumpy and twisted logic in the character's backstory to make it believable. I can see that. Though, in my case, when I did play a Gisserai from the UA, I made it so that the reason she was out in the world was because she was on a mission to bring Xerthamon's teachings to everyone. Okay, yeah, that that I could... I mean, the Gisserai are a little easier to fit in, True. but I feel like the Yankee, it's like... I, I can see how they would need to all be get Yankee in the party. Yeah, because everything about them says that they just treat every other race with pure contempt unless they're an Illithid or a Gitzerai, in which case they just treat them with flat-out murder. Yep. So why they would be venturing around with other parties is just sort of, like I said, it just sort of is massively immersion-breaking. I do like the fact that they decided that 
abyssal-based tieflings and illithids aren't going to be player races because illithid player races is just no. Like, there's there's no way that would make any kind of sense. I'm also really glad of that as well because I think that there needs to be some races that retain a little bit of mystery by not being player races, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I think they're also... I mean, like I said, the more player races you have, the more that their lore starts to break down. Yeah. So, I mean, the Illithids are always held up as very powerful psionics, part of a hive mind or a very close to a hive mind society, and they don't ally with any other races unless they have them literally enslaved. So if you want that lore to mean anything, you can't have them be player characters. Right, exactly. And the the thing is, you like, you wouldn't get a player character of the Elder Brain. So that's, <laughs> yeah. you know, exactly why you wouldn't be able to do that. Uh, just going on to the other things that will be included, I think it's interesting that we're going to see Eladrin as an actual full feature because they were in the Dungeon Master's Guide as an alternative that you could use. And it gave you, uh, they used it as an example for how to build your own race. But having them in as a full fey type creature i do quite like that i mean i've always been partial to the eladrin anyway that's usually what i play if i uh, if i ever play because forever dm over here and uh the other options like the sea elves um elves of the sea i they keep in all the sort of literature that i've been reading about it they've tried to attach like a sort of air of mystery to them almost and i, I don't know i think their name's quite self-explanatory really yeah, I, f- I feel like they may have not given up, but sort of forgot about it and just... It, it seems like a placeholder name that just made it through without anyone double-checking it. <laughs> Where it's like, yeah, these are the CLs. Alright, so we've got the section, and then it comes to publication. It's like, here's the section on the CLs, and everyone looks around going, wait, did we... Nobody called that out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one other thing that I also do like is, uh, and this was brought up on the D&D Beyond interview with Mike Merles regarding Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, which is that the way that they're also designing this, because it's done in the Volo's Guide style, which is very much like a guidebook, you're supposed to be able to hand this to even players that are new to the game, and through it, they'll be able to learn everything about the dwarves, everything about the elves. It like goes way back into the history of D&D and gives you a full primer on those races. I actually really like the lore. Yeah, I do like the fact that we're getting all that lore information. That was one of my favorite things about things like the Guide to the Plains and things like that, was reading about all of these larger conflicts. So Mm. the fact that they're going into more detail about those is nice. Also, the fact that there are a lot more high CR monsters, because we've mentioned for a while that that's something D&D has been lacking in 5th edition. Yeah, completely. Uh, Especially because they say that a lot of campaigns don't last past level 10, which is why they haven't really released a lot of high static monsters. But if you have a campaign that has lasted past level 10, or alternatively, if you start one that is post level 10, then you, you do still need content for it. Yeah, you. I mean, you have to wonder what the causality is there, because is it that campaigns aren't lasting beyond level 10 because that's where players want to stop or is it because once they get there the dm goes uh guys i don't have a lot of things that you can fight anymore so i mean unless of course dragons because 
those are always good to fight at higher levels. But, you know, after you killed your 19th ancient red dragon, it sort of starts to pall. And don't worry, Ryu, he doesn't mean it. <laughs> Going back to the lore thing, one of the things that I really liked about Volos is how, like, even just reading about the giants, and particularly the cloud giants, and um, everything that they do brought new light to a certain portion in Tyranny of Dragons for me. And I was like, oh, that's why they acted that way. And it, it was really illuminating. So I'm really looking forward to all the lore that's going to be in the new book. Yeah, likewise. Just uh, to kind of steer the conversation in a slightly different direction. One of the other things that they were saying with Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes is that Mordenkainen has written the book looking at a cosmic perspective and he is chiefly concerned with everything remaining in balance so what he's concerned with is not necessarily that good will triumph over evil because that's still unbalanced whereas most people would kind of want to see that as the actual thing that happens and based on this sort of axis of the nine alignments from good through to evil and lawful through to chaos it sounds as if alignment is possibly going to play a bit of a bigger deal in Mordenkainen's Time of Foes than we've previously seen in 5th edition. So as DMs, how much does alignment actually impact your games personally? Most of my characters are, are generally good or neutral, and then I always have that one evil character that just has to prove to everybody just how evil he actually is. Matthew Colville has a term for that. I'm not going to repeat it right now. <laughs> the players that I play with or DM for actually tend to pick an alignment and then pay attention to it. So they, they sort of keep an eye on how they're behaving in light of their alignment. So that does play a significant role in the campaigns, but not to the point where it's like dictating storylines. I don't know if that right. makes any sense. I mean, the thing is, is alignment in 5th edition is still very much a role-playing thing. There aren't Absolutely. any mechanics that build into it, because they've done away with the things of, like, paladins or clerics losing their powers if they drift too far from their god's alignment, and there are no more spells that are triggered based on an alignment that's dictated for a particular character or creature. So it's still 100% a, a role-playing thing at this juncture. Are you saying you think that they're going to try to work the alignment back into some of the rule mechanics? I'm honestly not too sure. I mean, I think we've seen almost hints of it in Xanathar's Guide when they introduced the Oathbreaker Paladin, which is about as close to an evil paladin as they've actually released. But having this whole thing with Mordenkainen being interested in the balance, it could just be a narrative tool to explain why he's writing about evil things as well as writing about good things in such a, a militaristic level of detail. But it could also indicate that because he wants everything to be balanced that they may start putting in features that allow the alignment scales to tip and shift slightly. The main reason that I was asking is because in my personal experience, I tend to find that those players that are really quite into the role-playing will, like you said, keep an eye on their alignment and act accordingly. But then you get a lot of players who pick, generally they pick something along the lines of true neutral or neutral good because they just basically don't want to have to consider it, so they go for the 
I'm not bothered option. And I just thought that if we're going to see more alignment-based things, even if it is just for role-playing, then that might force these players to have to actually start considering their alignment choices. I do want to say that, um, first of all, the player that I mentioned earlier, he actually does make the game quite interesting, and he knows I love him, so I'm not... Does he listen to the show? Yes. (laughs) Oh, okay. Never mind. He does listen to the show. But still, he actually does bring a lot of flavor to the game. Um, Though though one of his characters... Though one of his characters' escapades did um, end up getting him killed by one of the other characters. Oops. So we'll see how that how his new character handles situations now. Yeah, well, I mean, character alignments other than the neutrals, because those are sort of the, I don't want to call them cop-out alignments, but they, as Lennon said, they require very little attention in terms of role-playing. So when you venture into the evil or good tracks, the situation always gets more interesting. If that does influence the game more after Tome of Foes comes out, that'll be interesting. I've also noticed that a lot of players, and and myself included, so I'm not trying to rag on anyone specifically, but I've noticed a lot of players tend to create their character with a certain alignment and try to play that character to the alignment instead of just letting the alignment come to the character naturally. Have you guys n- noticed that? Yeah, yeah. Um, same here. That's what I was saying. The role players tend to use it as a guide for their characters. Yeah. But yeah, I think that that's also maybe something that needs uh, a little bit more guidance on maybe then for newer dungeon masters is, you know, when you're sitting down with your players to create your characters, should you be bringing up the subject of alignments to begin with? And how, I guess it all depends ultimately on how much it will actually feature in your campaign. And considering that we spent a little while talking about this, this will probably make a pretty good topic for a short rest sometime. I was going to say, we actually have a couple of short rests that are, or that deal with that topic. All right, well, let's not ruin future shows then. <laughs> well, we'll be sure to keep you guys up to date with Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes as we hear more. But now that we're caught up with the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and look into the archives of Candlekeep. I require access to all human knowledge. Oh, you've come to the right place, my boy. Hey, Lynn. Um, everything all right? Uh, kinda. I mean, it's it's Valentine's Day, and I've still not managed to find anything for the wife. Um, even with my ukulele, my performance check would be a critical failure, what with still recovering from the Ryu flu. And, I mean, just in case the Ryu flu turns out to actually be lycanthropy, moonlit walks on the beach are probably best avoided, so I'm kind of stuck for ideas. Well, you could just do what any good adventurer does. Look for an item to give bonus to your persuasion skill check. Yeah, take it from me. Chocolate. Uh, I mean, not a bad idea, but where am I likely to get that from this late in the day? I mean, it's not as if I can just teleport out of here. Actually, we can. Uh, Sorry, come again? Well, since Mordenkainen's magnificent manual of the multiverse will be out soon, I decided to look into planar travel. As well as being great in emergencies, it makes the commute to the keep much quicker. Oh, oh, I have a plan. We can get the finest stuff right at the source. Can you take us to Ixalan? Ixalan? Uh, yeah, sure. But first, it might be worth going over what we can expect. So I happen to have these parchments from Archives of the Candlekeep. 
So here you go. One for you, one for you. Okay. Plane Shift Excellent. Like the previous Plane Shift offerings, provides considerable material that can be incorporated into existing campaigns and is available as a free download on the Magic the Gathering side of the Wizards of the Coast website. Ixalan, after all, being one of the planes that Magic the Gathering takes place on. A quick conversion to the D&D 5th edition rules later, and after the introduction, the PDF opens with four nations, the factions that serve as the center of the conflict for the plane, of which the Sun Empire is the first. Capturing the flavor of the Aztec, Incan, and Mayan empires, the Sun Empire dominates the eastern coast of Ixalan. They seek to expand back into territory they once occupied, and is currently held by the River Guardians faction, who seek to protect the ruins and artifacts of the Empire from the abuse that led to the Empire's original exile. On the other hand, the Empire also struggles to hold their current lands against the invading force of vampiric conquistadors of the Legion of Dusk, while the pirates of the Brazen Coalition prey upon the vessels of all factions. In addition to a thumbnail description, the supplement includes role-playing guides for each faction, as well as a breakdown of which classes appear and what role those classes play in each faction. It's easy to imagine the kinds of adventures members of each faction would participate in. Ixalan also provides several exotic new races for player characters, including new takes on several races that previously appeared in Planeshift Syndicar. As always, humans appear as the most populous race. With the exception of adapting to the language peculiarities of the Ixalan setting, they are identical to the humans presented in the player's handbook. Similarly, while the orcs of the Brazen Coalition have a different history and appearance, they use the PHB's stats for half-orcs. Joining them are the all-new avian sirens, as well as Ixalan variants of the merfolk, vampires, and goblins that Ixalan shares with Zendikar, including rules to treat those shared races as a single race with multiple sub-races. Merfolk are the most easily incorporated into campaigns that haven't yet had seaborne elements. They simply become a fact of life the players haven't run into yet. Similarly, it wouldn't be surprising for the players to encounter a region where goblins and orcs are readily accepted by the rougher elements of society, and thus integrate to a greater extent than the usual with more civilized races. The vampires and sirens of Ixalan, however, present greater challenges to incorporate into non-Ixalan campaigns, and thus it might be simpler for a DM to leave those elements out than to try to merge them in seamlessly. The next segment of the Planes Shift Ixalan book brings us an overview of significant sites in the region complete with a map. Whilst it fails to list likely zones to find cocoa beans for example, it does give brief descriptions for a number of sites within Ixalan, including a suggestion for incorporating the hidden shrine of Tomoachan cited earlier as a primary source of inspiration for Ixalan. With Tomoachan once again available in 5th edition thanks to the release of Tales from the Yawning Portal, DMs have a fully developed adventure module ready to introduce their players to Ixalan. Following this is a list of Ixalan-themed art objects of each treasure level, suitable for spicing up any treasure hunter or pirate's hall, as well as a table to help modify magic item descriptions to incorporate decorative or magical themes for treasures originating from within Ixalan. The penultimate section of the Ixalan supplement is the Bestiary. Like the previous Plane Shift offerings, rather than providing stat blocks for a modest selection of the many creatures in Ixalan, it assigns most stats from creatures in the Monster Manual and Volo's Guide to a wide variety of Ixalan beasts, much larger than would be possible if every stat block had to be reproduced. Some monsters are simply reskins. The dinosaurs of Ixalan usually feature brightly colored feathered crests, but operate identically to their more drably colored counterparts from the Monster Manual. 
Some matchups are more extreme, but still logical. For example, while the Hammer Skull may be a bipedal feathered lizard, its tendency to make ramming attacks makes it a perfect match for the giant goat statistics. A handful of creatures require minor stat changes compared to their vanilla counterparts, while others are unique enough to merit their own stat blocks. Of special note is the inclusion of six Tarrasque-class CR30 dinosaurs. Whether you need to teach your players humility or want to recreate your favorite Godzilla movie, Ixalan has you covered. Of course, this material is not Adventures League legal, so the actual level of terror brought by these creatures may be less or more than is advertised. The final section is primarily of interest to those who are interested in a campaign that draws heavily from the lore of Magic the Gathering, being a discussion of the five colors of mana and how they are viewed by the denizens of the Magic the Gathering multiverse. Like the notion of the Weave in the Forgotten Realms lands, the five color mana system has no rules or impact on how the game plays, it's simply a matter of flavor. For those who may want to set a campaign in Ixalan, the Planeshift document is purely the starting point. Planeshift Ixalan accompanied the release of The Art of Magic the Gathering Ixalan, which includes more detail about the plane of Ixalan than can be included in a single 40-page Planeshift document not to mention showing off all the artwork from the Magic the Gathering card sets. It will prove invaluable to anyone looking for the in-depth lore of the world. Additionally, Wizards of the Coast website includes more information, including the full card set, as well as a lengthy fiction offering, following the story of a planeswalker named Jace who finds himself trapped in Ixalan. On the other hand, those that may want to use this as a part of a more general Mesoamerican campaign would do well to hunt down material from the Maztica campaign setting, an older D&D product created as a fantasy version of the Mayan and Aztec empires, with a heavy focus on historical accuracy. Of the material presented in Planeshift Ixalan, the playable races are probably the most problematic for non-Ixalan settings, but there's no reason that they can't be left out using the setting with humans alone, or with a blend of the different races. Alrighty, anything else you want to know? No, but I'm gonna go grab my daggers, just in case. Yeah, and whilst you're there, can you pick me up a longbow? <laughs> We're going on an adventure. Well, we need to record the rest of the show first, and that takes place when we peer into the scrying pool to see what our listeners have to say. What news from the north? Riders of Rohan! Message for you, sir. We asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, are you hoping Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes will give us details on new planes to play in, or is it just going to be another list of creatures with some extra fluff and a few playable races? And also, does the lore on Tiamat or the Orcs leave you wondering? Brewhammer, from at BrewhammerDnd on Twitter, says, I'm excited about everything I've heard, except for the Eladrin. The continued silly need to out-elf the High Elf is insane and redundant. I am most excited about the Demons and Devils and the Gith. And Ryan McKimmons at Naterral on Twitter says, It looks a lot like a new Volo's Guide to me. Well, uh, that's because it is. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, obviously we've now had a bit more detail on Modern Cannon's Tome of Foes. You know, they have said it's going to be done in the Volo's style. Uh, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, and Ryan, I'd be interested to know if you think it's a bad thing or not. Well, it might just be because they explicitly stated that it's not the Monster Manual 3, and then they came out and yeah. said it's basically Volos, and everybody... It's Volos 2. Right, and everybody has called Volos Monster Manual 2, so mm. it, right. there's a little bit of like, okay, so what are you guys really doing there? I mean, the bulk yeah. of Volos is... 
monsters. So what what are we supposed to think about that? Volos was definitely monsters generic. There's a lot of spread in, in the second half of the book. I'm wondering if Mordenkainen's is going to be a lot more focused. So if we only learn about demons, devils, dwarves, and elves, as an example, that we only get stats for those. We don't then suddenly get, like, zarts and redcaps and well, different but, types of yuan-ti. And- yeah, but they've also got... I mean, they've got the gith and gith all of the permutations thereof and the illithids that we know of. I mean, it's more focused in the sense of we're not dealing with the prime material plane, but that's sort of like we're going to focus on the continent of Asia. So there's <laughs> debate on yeah. focus there. But to, to sort of play it off against Volos, though, like Volos has the five highlighted races in the beginning, but then once you get to the monster section, you've got like grungs, drakes, hags, and none of these appear in the main bulk of work. So I'm wondering if the monster sections that we get will be related directly to the ones that we have the deep dive on rather than just a, a spread. Also, I have to disagree with Brewhammer. The Eladrin are, are fantastic, and they need to out High Elf the High Elves. That's you just got to keep going up the tray. Weren't the Eladrin in 3-5 basically High Elves? Am I wrong? I thought that they were interchangeable. I don't know. Uh, okay. I was going to say, I don't know either. I was hoping Ostrom would know. <laughs> nope, sorry. I'm only familiar with the Eladrin from 4. I just seem to remember reading somewhere that the Eladrin are a subset of High Elf. And I don't remember if that was in the PHB or if it was even in 5e. I think it may have been in 3.5. Let's grab the 5th edition PHB. They didn't have a set, a different subset. It was like just a, a sentence in the High Elf portion. Yeah, that's what I was just looking at. And they they aren't in there, but they are they are a separate thing in the 4th edition. Okay. PHB. So I'm gonna have to look that up. The Ladrin in fourth edition were essentially if you want to power game an elf spellcaster, you choose a Ladrin. If you want to power game an elf archer, you choose High Elf. Right. Hyarian Selenar via R slash D D next on Reddit says these guys are pretty awesome. Thanks. Ben Fisner from Facebook says, On one hand, I prefer looking at material in books. I prefer looking at printed pages instead of at a screen. Having multiple books open, I just find it easier. On the other hand, I don't want to have to flip through five different books just to find the one thing I want. Now that we've got the PHB, Xanathar's Guide to Everything, Sword Coast Adventures Guide, and now Mordenkainen's Foamy Toes, I need an easier way to collate all my options in one place. Marty Chidoric returns on Twitter and says, Olympic caliber Mordenkainen speculation in the latest Heroes Rise D&D podcast. I can imagine the wise adventurers squinting at a tiny rectangle of screen-capped pixels. It looks like that's just her belt. Look at anything long enough, you see a kender. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I wonder who he's trolling right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I will not rise to this on this occasion. I'll just privately shatter him on Twitter. Uh, Gath member via our website says, would it be possible to add timestamps to the section descriptions in the show notes? Or are they there and I'm just overlooking them? It would be great when I want to go back and listen to a subsection like a short rest or the outtakes. As always, keep up the great content. Uh, yeah, good idea. We will speak with our elves and see if we can get that done. 
And uh, also, we just want to give a big thank you to everybody who sent in suggestions for our community mage Ray Ray's druid build. Uh, she is looking forward to terrifying the enemy with cuteness in her next game. And now for this week's community question. Will you be backing Matt Colville or Mike Shea's Kickstarters? And now that we have some more details on Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes, what are you most looking forward to? Do you like the Volo's Guide style, or would you prefer something more like a Monster Manual or Xanathar's Guide? Have you tried any of the Plane Shift campaign settings? No matter your views, we want to hear them. Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And that brings us to the end of the 11th entry into our chronicle. Heroes Rise will be back with our 12th entry next week on February 21st. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D, or you can email us at sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. This show is a two-way conversation. Your feedback is an important part of everything we do here, so please take a moment to tell us your thoughts. And also make sure that you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to our feeds at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com or by looking us up on iTunes and Google Play Music. And if you like the sound of what we do, we are always looking for new adventurers to join the party, and all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in our show notes. No matter your passion, whether it's scribing, dungeon mastering, or audio alchemy, we're sure to have a spot at our table for you. So all that remains is for us to thank the people who make this show possible. Our head scribe, Baxter, our social media mage, Ray Ray, and of course, our audio alchemist, Mikey. Special thanks go to Vince Vept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincevept.bandcamp.com and Lowe of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at RealLarryD and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank you all for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. You need to find your way around. Oh, hi, puppies. The puppies just got home. Whataboo? Whatabow? I actually don't know how to pronounce this, so we're going to say whataboo. Neverwinter Nights has also had a handler. <laughs> I mean, it's Star. not as if I can just teleport out of here. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it's not as if I can just... <laughs> okay. Do you think you said each faction enough times? Yeah, each faction. <laughs> The Panopto did 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 it there. Let's go on an adventure. <laughs>